Well, good morning, church. How we doing? Good, man. You guys got some energy. I like it. I like it. Hey, uh, I'm Peter Anderson. I'm a senior pastor here at F.E. Hanford. We are so happy you're with us today. Uh, exciting season for us. Actually, next uh, next weekend, we get to kick off our Christmas series. And so we are... Uh, okay. Um, we, uh, we celebrate Christmas at the appropriate time, which is after Thanksgiving, for those of you who are in the diehards in the room. Yep, we put our tree up yesterday, um, and so anybody who didn't, that's between you and God. Um, but uh, but we're, uh, we're actually kicking off our Christmas series, um, and uh, that series is called Christmas Stories, and from uh, December 2nd through uh, Christmas Eve, which Pastor Jeff announced a little bit earlier, uh, we're actually going to take a look at different stories from different people's points of view um, who were involved in, uh, in the Christmas narrative, and so we're excited about that, and, and next week there's, uh, there's a whole bunch of cute kids. Um, it seems like half of them are mine, but that's why they're so cute. Um, but, uh, who are going to be in that? So if nothing else, uh, come see my kids next weekend. Um, but, uh, but, but before we get to Christmas, uh, we're going to finish up our series, uh, in epistles for those of you who are new with us, uh, or who don't know what that word means. Epistles is essentially a, a fancy word for letter. Uh, and specifically we're talking through the Pauline epistles. So any letter that Paul wrote, um, and we've been kind of working through this series because of the fact that, that we want to zoom out and look at what was being accomplished in these letters as a whole. Because while we do a good job of zooming in and looking at individual verses and texts, key texts and that sort of thing, we don't always get a, an overview of the entirety of, uh, of different books of the Bible. And so last week, uh, man, I felt like I was just trying to yell at you guys as fast as I could before I got off the stage. We, we went through uh, the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy, as well as Titus. And this week we get to, uh, we get to wrap up in the book of Philemon. Um, and so, uh, yeah, Philemon, for those of you who have read it over and over and over again and pronounced it Philemon or, it, it, you know, some strange way, Philemon is one of the appropriate ways to say it. There's others. I say Philemon, um, others say Philemon. I, so I go with Philemon though. Um, but, uh, but the reason we're doing this is because honestly, there are a lot of us in the room who have read through these different things or, or maybe even be familiar with scripture and that sort of thing and have been a part of faith for an incredibly long time. And maybe you've missed the intention of some of these different things, of some of these books of the Bible. Oftentimes what Paul was trying to do is trying to convey to his audience two different things. One, that Jews and Gentiles are both welcome into the family of God. And two, that the church should be a living representative of Christ and his love for people. So one last time, do it for me. Turn to your neighbor and just say, hey, the church isn't perfect. Now turn back to the other person and say, my church isn't perfect. Good. Good. Again, always a little bit more difficult on that second one. But Paul is going to, uh, to essentially take this thought that we have, that he wants the entirety of the body of Christ to, to uh, be able to worship Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. And so if you're new to faith um, or you're here for, for the first time, there's two groups of people that the Bible tends to identify. There's Jews and then there's Gentiles. Raise your hand if you're Jewish. That's what I thought. You're all Gentiles. That's not true. <laughs> I'll raise your hand. 
And so if you aren't Jewish, you're considered a Gentile. And so Paul was opening his letters to try to, to try to make sure that these people are included into the fold. Now I say all of these things, but Philemon is a very different book of the Bible. Philemon is what we would call more of a personal letter. Paul is taking an opportunity to write to someone about something specific that's going on in his life. That someone, of course, is a man by the name of Philemon. So from an outside perspective, uh, we, we, need to, we need to get a little bit of backstory here. Because when you open the book of Philemon, and if you want to feel like you're accomplished and read an entire book of the Bible, go to Philemon. It's 25 verses, and you can knock it out. And you're like, I read a whole book of the Bible today. I don't know what you did, but I read a whole book of the Bible. Um, but, but it's 25 verses, and largely those 25 verses are dealing with uh, Philemon, who is a slave owner, and his slave Onesimus, who has ran away. Who has run away, rather. And so that's what we're dealing. And so from the outside, you're like, time out, 21st century. We don't need to deal with this. We understand this. We understand this. is Well, there's a lot that we can actually glean from this, uh, from this story. I mean, maybe, maybe there are those of us in here who probably even sat around your Thanksgiving table this week. And thought to yourself, you know what? That person has wronged me. Or that person stabbed me in the back one time. Or that person is a little bit too verbose about things that I have told them in the past or whatever it may be. Maybe it wasn't at your Thanksgiving table. Maybe it was just your interaction on a regular basis with others in your life. And you think to yourself, they have wronged me. They have done something wrong. I shared something with them. I did something for them. And in return, all I got was stabbed in the back or in return, all I got was no thankfulness whatsoever. They just simply walked away. And so if that's you in the room in here, and my guess is it is you, as we all have felt those feelings of betrayal at some time or another, then there is wisdom to be gleaned from this book. So, to this slide. Our author is Paul, of course. Our date is 60 AD. It's written to Philemon. It's written from a prison in Rome. So you'll notice a whole lot of times that Paul is, uh, is writing from prison. Because Paul, while he is in prison, has a whole lot of time on his hands. And specifically, um, in this instance, we have someone who came to visit him. Onesimus, like I said, was a slave to Philemon. So we're going to start there because a long time for, for a long time, this text was used to validate the case for slavery. Specifically in America, both before and during the Civil War. As a matter of fact, during the Civil War in America, both sides would regularly use the book of Philemon to argue their case, to argue their point for slavery or against slavery, which is kind of interesting. But that's one of the things that we know. There's, there's not a single author, actually, in the New Testament that called for the abolition of slavery. Not a single author, which a lot of people also... A long time ago would use to be able to say, hey, look, no one in the New Testament called for the end of slavery. So if the Bible says that we shouldn't end slavery, then I guess slavery is probably okay. It's an argument from a lack of information. The reason, though, that no one in the New Testament, I'm assuming here, but one of the reasons that no one in the New Testament called for the end of slavery is because as a new religion calling for the abolition of slavery in the ancient world, it would have been suicidal. 
And here's why. Although slavery was, was occasionally practiced in Israel, it was never widespread and was carefully regulated by Old Testament law. So you think about the Old Testament law, everything the Old Testament says do or don't do, do or don't do, right? It was regulated by that. So in Israel specifically, it wasn't super widespread. It never got out of hand. It never got abused for the most part. But the Roman Empire by contrast, was built on slave labor. Every time the Romans conquered a new province, they added new slaves to their empire. People tell us that that in the days of Paul, there were far more slaves, actually, than Roman citizens. And it probably wouldn't have been unusual for a rich man to own anywhere between 10 and 20,000 slaves. In short, slavery was so commonplace and so accepted that no one thought seriously to oppose it. It would have been suicidal. Beyond that, Roman law provided little protection for slaves because they were regarded as property, not as people. Now, this is the type of slavery that we are accustomed to, the type of slavery that we understand, that we studied in school and that sort of thing. Owners could mistreat their slaves and even kill them with little or no legal retaliation. The law specifically provided that owners could put runaway slaves to death, presumably as a warning to others. So while we know slavery is wrong and no one here would condone t- slavery in the 21st century, it was a social norm that people didn't even think twice about. It was just normal. So as we're walking through this, understand that Paul is not condoning slavery in any way, shape, or form. He is speaking truth towards the treatment of all people. And that's Paul's intention here. Here's the reality regarding slavery back then. Slaves accounted for 85% of Rome's population. That's a majority for those of you political pundits out here. 85% of the people in the Roman Empire probably were slaves. Beyond that, Roman slavery, it wasn't based on ethnicity. So when you're thinking of this, okay, don't think of slavery ethnically. It's not based on ethnicity whatsoever. They were oftentimes educated. Some were doctors, some were teachers, artists, philosophers, writers, Slavery was essentially a career choice. The educated sold themselves sometimes to even learn a trade or to go into a new business to learn that trade. So slavery back then looked differently than the slavery we are, we are all familiar with. So about five to six years before Paul was executed, Paul writes a brief letter to a friend who lived in Colossae. Now, for those of you who have been keeping track, there was a church that we studied. It was a letter to, uh, to, the, to the Colossian people. That church was in Colossae. Now, a lot of people think that the book of Philemon and the book of Colossians were written at the same time. Actually, there's a lot of evidence for that. So Paul penned a book, or penned a letter rather, to the church that, that was founded in Colossae. And at the same time, he penned a letter to his friend who would have been living pretty close there. So he wrote that letter. His name, like I said, was Philemon, and he refers to him as a dear friend and a fellow worker. And the church actually met in his home. The other main character in this story is the slave. His name is Onesimus. If you're trying to keep track, Onesimus, it's one Simus, O-N-E-S-I-M-U-S, Onesimus. His name actually means profitable or helpful which is an interesting twist on the entire story. Paul wrote Philemon asking him to accept, back, forgive, and restore his runaway slave. Okay, we're, this is all backstory. We're getting to it. A lot of you guys are like, I haven't filled in a blank yet. Relax, we'll get there, okay? 
But the question then is, is why did Onesimus run away? Well, apparently Onesimus was guilty of theft. Okay, Onesimus stole from Philemon. And when he hid his deed, when that deed was discovered, he fled to Rome to blend in with the, with the city's slave population. You're assuming to yourself, man, 85% of the city is slaves. Onesimus probably has a pretty good chance of hiding there, right? He thought the same thing. And so he went to Rome. And by God's providence, he crosses paths with none other than our boy, the Apostle Paul. Now, as we can assume, Paul doesn't pull any punches. And so what Paul does is he starts sharing with him about, of course, Jesus. And as we can assume, like most people that Paul came into contact with, Onesimus decided to accept Christ as his Savior. Thank you, Paul. But at the beginning of it, that, that is just the beginning of his story. For a lot of us, we, can, we, talk about, we talk about our testimony and think, okay, for a whole long time, I lived this way. I decided to follow Jesus. From that point forward, I, I lived for Christ. And so for a lot of us, we tell our story about all the backstory and I was changed and that's it. For Onesimus, though, this is just the beginning of his story. This poor guy, because now he gets written down for all of us to study about his thievery <laughs> forever. Beyond that, there is a second pastor who shows up on the scene. This pastor's name is Epaphras. Okay. Epaphras showed up in Rome to check on Paul. Guess where Epaphras is from? Yep. Colossae. And so now we have Onesimus who ran away from the guy whose house the church was in. And then the pastor from that church shows up, right? Like, this guy can't catch a break. And to be fair, he stole from, he he stole. (laughs) So I don't feel too terribly bad for him. But Epaphras then shows up. Epaphras would have known Onesimus. Yeah, we think about our church. We think about our church size, right? We're a medium-sized church by, by all, all general metrics and people are measuring churches and that sort of thing. And so even in our church, it's pretty difficult for us to know everybody's name, right? Real hard. Trust me, I know. And so it's real difficult, but in a home church, in a small church, especially if this is the pastor and and, and somebody whose home that you're meeting in, in Philemon, has a a key slave, somebody who, who was working in his home, stole from him and ran away, you bet that Philemon would have told the pastor, one of the pastors in that home church, what was going on. And so, so Epaphras would have known about Onesimus, and he probably would have known what the issue was, was there. Chances are, actually, the entire church knows about Onesimus running away. Epaphras showing up in Rome, and Paul appealing to Philemon to extend grace and forgive his runaway slave. So that gets us into the actual book. You type A's, here we go. Bear in mind, this book, 25 verses long, so we're really going to be dealing with one meaty section the entire time, okay? It's just that center section. And to start things off, though, Paul gets into his classic greeting. So here you go. uh, It's Philemon 1, verses 1 through 7. Major theme is going to be prayer and greeting. Now, we, we have kind of skimmed over this part in most of Paul's epistles, mostly because we have so much to get through. But I wanted to call attention to this one, okay? Because this is going to be largely Paul's standard greeting. But Paul addresses Philemon as dear friend and fellow worker, which shows us that there was a warm, personal rela- relationship already established between him and Paul. Him and Paul, as Paul was helped setting up that church, probably would have had to be in pretty good communication with one another, 
the guy whose home the church is going to be in and the guy who set up the church. Chances are those modes of communication were probably pretty open. Paul knew that Philemon always went the extra mile. He's a very good Christian, as very good Christians should. He wasn't just a brother to Paul and the head of the household of the Christian family. In verse 2, we find out that Philemon also held a church in his own home, like I've told you. And so when Paul first met this man by the name of Onesimus and found out he was a runaway slave of the Christian, he knew from Colossae, he recognized that, this, that his heavenly father was at work. That was, this wasn't just some accident that he happened to know this slave that he met and he led to Christ. He knew that God was at work. And so Paul went to work on Onesimus. He pointed, he pointed out Onesimus' sin, the sin of his actions, and then he followed that up with the good news of how Jesus had already paid for that sin, which we're going to focus on in a little bit. And as a result, Onesimus was not only converted to the faith, he became a trusted and reliable helper to Paul, especially during his time of imprisonment. Paul is encouraging Philemon here to the best of his ability. Specifically in verses 4 through 6, it says this. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Remember, this is Paul talking to Onesimus. Or, I'm sorry, to Philemon. Because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Paul says something interesting here. In the, in the beginning of verse 6, he says, I pray that your what? Partnership. Paul's going to lean on this in just a second. But he's talking about being a partner in the body of Christ. And what Paul is going to do is he gonna, he's going to say, look, Philemon, you're a partner in the body of Christ in the same way that Onesimus is a partner in the body of Christ. In the same way that I am a partner in the body of Christ. Which leads us straight into section 2. So section two, um, it is uh, Philemon 1, verses 8 through 21. And the major theme is a petition for Onesimus. It's a petition for Onesimus. Anybody, uh, anybody do any Black Friday shopping? Any Black Friday shoppers? You guys are all drinking coffee and sleeping in, okay? Yeah, Black Friday shopping, right? Um, Sarah and I went Black Friday shopping once. Never again. Just not worth it, especially when Amazon's going to have Cyber Monday. You know, I'm like, I'll stay in my PJs and click through that. That's all I need to do. Thank you very much. But for some people, it's like the thrill of getting out of the house and going to, going to Target or Best Buy to get a, a like $20 flat screen TV or whatever it is. I don't know. But largely what happens is, is, is in this season specifically, not just Black Friday, but, but this Christmas season is, man, credit card debt flies through the roof, right? People are just leaning on that credit card over and over and over again. And the credit card has, has almost become an American symbol of business, right? I went to get my haircut uh, in town uh, two, three weeks ago, something like that, and I walked in. And uh, I got my hair cut, and afterwards, I handed the lady my card, and she's like, oh, we only take cash. It's like, well, I just got my hair cut, so I don't know what you're going to do. Like, I can't, you can't paste my hair back to my head, right? Um, and so she's like, no, it's okay. This happens all the time. There's an ATM right around the corner. Go, go grab some cash and come back. So I did, and it was, and it was fine. But, but oftentimes, credit card, like, we don't even think about it anymore, 
right? Like it is a rare day for a lot of us when we think, oh yeah, I got an extra 20 bucks in my wallet. Not because we have an extra 20 bucks, just because it's cash, right? <laughs> so it's a rare day for that. To, I mean, credit card has become the symbol of American business. You know, some suggest that, that the logo and the symbol of a lot of those things should even be like the symbol of our country because go capitalism, right? Go credit, It's the passport for a whole lot of people today. Anything can be bought with a credit card as long as your limit is high enough, apparently, except my haircut. Um, But from gas to to tools to sandwiches to a a night's lodging to a weekend resort to an an airfare, whatever it may be. And for the most part, when I travel or, or when I shop or when I do any of those things, I look in the corner of the window and make sure that it has like one of those two little logos sitting in the corner. I'm like, okay, I know I'm good. I can swipe my card here. I'm going to be good to go. I'll be all right. Apparently I didn't with the haircut place though. Um, but a lot of times we'll usually find this display, these insignias of all these different credit cards that they accept. There's signs that say we accept all of these and down underneath that they say, and we also take cash. You know, there are some organizations that, that they don't accept cash anymore at all, right? Where they say, sorry, I can't take cash. I'm like, what? I got $20 right here I want to hand to you. Like, nope, we need it to be plastic or we won't accept it, which, okay. In our text this morning, we find that credit is being extended. Paul the Apostle writes a letter, and in essence, he's saying, whatever is owed... I don't have cash, therefore I need you to charge it to my account, whatever it is that's owed. I'm signing the slip now, put it on my tab, so you will know that I intend to pay this debt. Behind this statement, of course, is going to be verses 1, or chapter 1, verses 17 to 19, and it says this. It says, if then you regard me a partner, now remember, we had just gone from verse 6, it said you are a partner in Christ. So Paul leans on this again. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Put that on me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. A partner. Even though Paul's in prison in Rome, yeah. Because anyone who is made serving Jesus their first purpose in life is a partner with the rest of that community. Anybody who says yes to Jesus is a partner in that community. And one of the ways to, to diffuse a potential messy situation is to remind each other that we're all members of that community, that faith community. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here because ultimately what helps me helps you and what helps you helps me what is bad for you is bad for the community what is good for you is good for the community and remembering that we are a community will affect the way we deal with messy with messy situations it's our responsibility then to act as a community paul is 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 doing his best To let Philemon know 
that Onesimus is a part of this community now. That whatever it is that Onesimus did, I will take the place of that. I will pay that debt for you. It is written in my hand. I'm writing it down so you will know that that debt will indeed be paid. And what Paul was was calling Philemon to do largely was revolutionary. Of course, all the instruction Paul gave to slaves and their owners is revolutionary. And if you want to look through that entire book again, read it today. Like read it on your way home. Read it by the time you get to the stop sign on Grangeville, right? Like it'll take you zero time to read that, but read through that. But all of this here is revolutionary. And many have wondered why why Paul didn't tell all slave slave owners just to, to stop owning slaves, And the answer to that is creating an uprising wasn't the way the church is to deal with slavery. Instead, Paul instructed slave owners to be good slave owners, to treat their slaves with rightness, to treat their slaves with fairness, and to remember that we all serve the same master. Slaves were instructed to be good workers, to work as though they were serving God and not serving men. And if someone could gain his freedom, that was fine. But otherwise, they weren't supposed to worry about it. Which largely leads us into the last section, which is section 3, Philemon 1, 22 to 25. And the major theme is Paul's salutation. Specifically, verse 25, it says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We need to remember that throughout this entire letter... Throughout this entire series, Paul is never calling people to act a certain way because it's morally upstanding or because Paul thinks it would be helpful to the community to act in a certain way. Paul is leading people toward life change through grace that is given through faith in Christ and faith alone. That's what Paul keeps calling people back to over and over and over again. He is consistently reminding people that everything is about Jesus over and over and over again. And so we look back at this entire series that we've done about epistles. None of it is just Paul thinking, hey, this is a good idea. All of this is Paul saying, look, if you want to honor Jesus, do this. Honor Jesus. You made that decision first. You're a Gentile. You don't yet know who Jesus is. Let me introduce you to him because he's open to everybody now. You care about what you did? He already went to the cross for it. And you know what? You know what happened when Jesus went to the cross? He said, you know what? That debt, that that, that slave, that us who are slaves to our own sin, that we run and hide and do our best to get away from Jesus, he says, you know what? I already paid it. It's written in my own hand. It's written in my own blood. And so because of that, we need to live in such a way that we honor God. Christ, that we honor him, that we listen to his spirit. It's all the things that Paul has been talking about on a regular basis. And so while even this book is talking about the slave trade, it's talking about a a slave and a slave owner. And we think to ourselves, man, I can't believe Paul would give instructions on that, that, that whole tradition. If we zoom out, we recognize that that Paul is saying, I will take that debt onto me in the same way that Jesus took my debt onto him. 
You just got to zoom out a little bit. Onesimus had escaped to Rome where he met Paul. Paul led him to Jesus, embracing him and calling him a son in the faith. Paul's heart was to, to father many young men deepening their faith. We talked about two of them last week. I can only assume that Onesimus would be another that Paul just wants to pour into. Philemon 1, 9 and 10, it says, actually, I, I appeal to you on the basis of my love for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Paul would have probably been in his 60s, right? A very loving father figure, constantly mentoring and sacrificially encouraging young believers to be devoted to the work of the church. And that's the church that Jesus came to establish on earth. It's not the church because that's what we do. It's not the church because our parents raised us in church and it's a tradition that we have to hold to. It's the church that Jesus set up to be the hope on earth. And that's what Paul was calling him to. Paul was an incredibly changed man. You think about Paul and, and where he started back in his, back in his thirties, probably he was dangerously devoted to religious hate as a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, this council of people who wanted to stamp out Christianity in the very beginning, Acts 9-1. It says Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. You want to talk about a changed man? You want to talk about somebody who recognized that Christ took his sin upon himself? Christ took Paul's sin upon himself and, and paid that debt and Paul had to do nothing in return. He was breathing out murderous threats. Transformation is a, is a lot like climbing a mountain. Anybody ever gone hiking? Any hikers? Yeah, a couple of you. Good. Um, I used to be, I used to love hiking. I still would love hiking um, if I could go longer than a mile without all of my kids giving up. Um, but, uh, but I love, I, I really do. I love the outdoors. I, Yosemite, I grew up in Merced. So Yosemite was an hour and a half away. I mean, that's where our family would vacation oftentimes and that sort of thing. But when I got into high school, I started, uh, I, I took a class called Sierra Nevada. And, and all we did for an entire year was learn about the Sierra Nevada mountain range. And we got to go on field trips and we, we studied the waterfalls and the wildflowers. and all. It just made this passion in my heart grow uh, for Yosemite specifically. Um, and, uh, and so Sarah and I started dating, I think we were 20 years old at the time. And I wanted to share that with Sarah. And so, uh, our college group, we decided that we were all going to go hike half dome one day. And, um, so we got up, it was like four 30 in the morning. We all met at the church. We caravaned over, um, to, uh, to, to the trailhead and we were going to start hiking half dome. And so we start chugging along and we're hiking up and that sort of thing. And I'm Sarah and I having, you know, good conversation, all that stuff. Isn't this great? And, um, and then at some point during the hike, Sarah informed me that she hadn't eaten breakfast that day. So for those of you guys who have gone hiking, Ever, especially strenuous hikes. Now, I think Half Dome is about 14 miles round trip. I don't know what the elevation gain is. It's stupid is what it is. Um, and, uh, and so I had like a granola bar in my bag and I gave it to her because I'm super kind and thoughtful and I was being a good boyfriend and all that stuff. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so we keep going. And then 
we, we got to a point. And so the goal was for us to eat lunch on top of Half Dome, right? Like we were going to go fast enough, get up to the top of Half Dome, eat lunch, take a little nap on top up there, and then make our way back down. And so it's like 11 o'clock, 11.30, and we, we get to ha- the base of Half Dome, which is called the Sub Dome. Okay. And so a lot of you have probably seen those pictures of the chains going up the back of half dome, where it just looks like ants going up there, right? That picture is usually taken from that sub dome right there. And so I look at Sarah and I look at the chains and I look at Sarah and she's visibly shaking. Okay. Not out of fear, out of malnutrition at this point. Um, and so <laughs> So I said, are you okay? She's like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm like, are you sure you're okay? Because we're about to do the hardest part of this thing. And you're, li- I can see you shaking right now. She's like, no, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And you have to know my wife, she's an athlete at heart. And so she's like, challenge accepted, right? Like she doesn't care what it is. Um, and so I was like, you know what? Let's stop. Let's just eat lunch here. And she's like, no, I don't want to eat lunch here. We're going to eat lunch on the top of half time. I'm like, no, let's stop. And eat our lunch here. And so we ended up stopping. We ate our lunch. We drank some water. She regained her strength. We made it up to the top. We just got to take a, a, a longer nap on the top of Half Dome. And everybody else who was trying to finish their lunches up there. Pfft, foolish. Um, but we made it. And we see God's creation. And it's beautiful. And, and uh, we were up there for probably an hour. Took the, the picture that's out on the diving board that everybody's like, why would you ever take that picture? Because it's awesome is the answer. Um, and then we made our way back down. But largely what we see here with Paul is Paul wants to walk alongside other people. If Sarah, if I wasn't with Sarah at that point, in other instances when I was hiking and I was, I was foolish or I was tired and I wanted to stop or I wanted to keep going regardless of my physical state, whatever it may have been, there were people next to me saying, no, stop. Or let's keep going. If we don't make it back by whenever we're going to be in trouble. I remember backpacking with my friend and it was getting late. We hiked a, a peak in the back country and it was getting really late. And, uh, we lost our, our marker, our trail marker. And so I was like, Hey man, let's just stop for a few minutes. He's like, dude, it's going to be dark in an hour. If we don't get back, we're in trouble. I was like, yeah, you're right, man. We don't need to stop. And rest. We need to get back. Paul is doing the same thing through all of these letters. He's doing the same thing with Onesimus. He's saying, hey, you need to do this, Onesimus. And then he's appealing to Philemon. He's saying, no, Philemon, you need to course correct. You need to go this way. In the same way that when you're working out or hiking or whatever, as you are doing it with a partner, as you are walking along with other people in your life, you are able to go further. You are able to make better decisions. You are able to last longer overall. It is the same thing when it comes to our faith is that if you are doing faith in a community, much like Paul is calling Onesimus to, much like Paul is reminding Philemon of, much like Epaphras would have been aware of, much like Paul would have been aware of, as Paul is calling these people to this community, saying, look, whatever benefits the, benefits the individual is going to benefit the community. And so Philemon, treat your slave in such a way that he is a partner in the faith. He knows he's a partner in the faith. He's a partner in this community. The same way that I knew that, like, I would have been a pretty terrible boyfriend if I left Sarah on Subdome and was like, I'm out, I'm going to get lunch on top of Half Dome. That would have been terrible. But Sarah and I were able to do more simply because I, I could help gauge what was happening. Paul, in all of these letters, is gauging what is happening. He's gauging what is happening to the different churches, to the different individuals that he was writing to. He's saying, hey, just course correct a little bit. Course correct a little bit. 
Sometimes that course correction is a little bit more painful than others, as we read. But regardless of that, Paul's intention here is over and over and over again to call people back to the feet of Jesus. Over and over and over again. And this week, as we're coming into the Christmas season... This week, this month, whatever it may be, we have opportunities for you to be able to to help people course correct in their life. As much as we put Paul on this like spiritual plateau, right? Paul was a normal guy. He's absolutely a normal guy. His boldness, he got from being sure of his salvation, sure of who Christ was, his encounter with Jesus. And he just said, okay, look, if Jesus, if that's who you are, then this is who I need to be. And that needs to remain true for all of us as we walk into this Christmas season and we recognize that, man, you know what? There are probably people who are already in your life who will say yes if you invite them to Christmas. Who will say yes if you invite them next week to see all those cute little kids on stage and be like, hey, we're starting this Christmas series next week. And there's going to be a whole bunch of kids on stage, like singing cute songs and that sort of thing. And we're going to hear a little bit about the Christmas, like Christmas message. I would love it if you came. I got a seat right next to me. And you may freak out a little bit because you may have to choose a different seat. (laughs) But regardless of that, like this Christmas season, we should leverage that opportunity to be able to help people course correct in their life. In the same way that Paul has been telling people, hey, you need to course correct in your life. Church, course correct. Individual, course correct. We'll be able to go further. We'll be able to go faster. We'll be able to be stronger in our faith if we decide that we are going to do it with one another. Because every decision we make in response to God has a ripple effect. Every decision we make in response to God has a ripple effect. Everybody uh, in Philemon are behaving differently than they would have before meeting Jesus. We already talked about Saul and Paul. Philemon and had been ripped off as Onesimus ran away, probably taking belongings to get a new start. Onesimus now returning in an attitude of surrender, hoping to be sent back to Paul, but willing to face Philemon submitting this request. Becoming a family together, helping one another course correct is central to the gospel. We studied that when we talked about the church, when we went through, when we went through what the church is supposed to be back in Acts chapter 2. And we talked about the idea of the fellowship of believers. That we are supposed to build each other up to help move each other forward. And all of this points to the big idea, which is that we're all equal in Christ. That's your big idea. We're all equal in Christ. And as we are all equal in Christ, we should recognize then that if I'm equal to you and you are equal to me and the people sitting around you, as long as you have said yes to Jesus, then the opportunity needs to be there for us to go further. For us to recognize that if we say, if Jesus is who he says he is, then I need to be who I'm supposed to be. Which is somebody who is intentionally inviting people to come into our community over and over and over again. And like I said, man, this Christmas season, do you know 83% of people said that they would attend church if somebody just asked them? 83%. That's like four out of five, four and 4.15 out of five. I'll ask my stewardship committee if that's the right number, but 
It's close to that. 83% of people. And you guys are figuring out, man, how can it, uh, I, would, he, I would love it if they came to know who Jesus was. And that's the extent of what we talk about. It's the extent of what we say. And I get it. I'm guilty of it too. December 24th, you're going to have a great opportunity. And I'm going to share this for the next four weeks until it's Christmas Eve. You guys have a great opportunity to bring people to church, to invite people to church who never, never would step foot in a church throughout the year. People who come to Christmas, people who come to Easter. We call them Christers. But they will get the opportunity to step foot in church. I'm not even asking you to share the gospel with them. Is that your responsibility? Yeah, it is. But I'm not even asking you to do that. I'm asking you guys to leverage what we are doing as a church, as a whole, the community, the fellowship of believers. I am asking you to invite people into the fold so they can see what it is that we do on a regular basis. And you can tell them, hey, Christmas Eve, man, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fantastic. It's gonna be largely musically driven. We have, this, we have this young, handsome worship pastor on staff now. And so because of that, like if nothing else, come look at him. Because he's handsome. But any single, right? So, but, but, but it's going to be musically driven. There's going to be some stuff for the kids. Man, we're trying to, we're trying to get our quartet to come, to come and, and, and sing with us. Like we're trying to do a whole bunch of stuff for Christmas so we can be intentional about inviting those people in our community. Christmas Eve, are we celebrating the birth of our Savior? Yeah, absolutely. But we also want you to leverage it as a tool to be able to invite your, invite your oikos. Yeah, our oikos specifically, we've talked about this numerous times, our oikos is the 8 to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed in your life. You already have people in your life who don't know Jesus. You don't have to go on a street corner and hold a sign. You don't have to go walk through the mall and start just talking with, with, with people that you've never met before about who Jesus is. You already have those people in your life. And if you invite them to Christmas Eve, they will say yes. If you invite them to church... They will say yes. Why? Because you already know them and they already love you. That's our responsibility. And then as we get the opportunity to love them well and bring them into the fold, then we get to course correct. We say, man, the kingdom of God just grew. And so because that we can go further, we can go faster, we can be stronger. We can continue to point people towards Jesus over and over and over again. And man, Heaven is rejoicing because another one just came to salvation over and over and over again. Can you imagine what, what it would look like if each of us just decided to invite just one person from our Oikos this Christmas season? Just, just one. To say, I've got a seat ready for you to kick off your holiday traditions and let the Holy Spirit take care of it. To have our sanctuary filled to overflowing so the name of God would be proclaimed by new lips from new people so the people in Hanford and the surrounding communities would honor this season, would honor God this season and honor God forever. What an incredibly fun and daring and scaring, scary and exciting season that we would find ourselves in as we help to add to the kingdom of God every single day. Paul cared enough to step into the mess and help course correct with uh, Philemon and Onesimus' situation. 
The question is, are we willing to care enough to step into the mess of our oikos as well? Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for your son. Um, thankful for even a uh, kind of a strange letter that uh, it's dealing with an issue that largely, as we do know, it's still, slavery is still alive and well in the world. God, that we don't deal with face-to-face on a regular basis. Father, I'm just thankful that um, we get the opportunity to know that it, it, while, yes, it is about slavery, that if we elevate our sight lines a little bit, we can recognize it's about being one in Christ, being partners in what it is that you're doing. God, that every single one of us is just a partner. But Lord, I pray that we would take that partnership seriously. God, that we would recognize that being a partner is a whole lot more than just showing up on a Sunday morning and just going to our Bible studies or our small groups or whatever it may be. That being a partner also means that we have to have your name on our lips consistently. So God, we, uh, we do pray for that. Father, I pray if there's those in here who don't yet know who you are, those in here who are not yet part of our community, Father, and and they just are feeling that burning in their heart and that I need to make this decision. I need to say yes to you, Father. I pray they would pray alongside of me now that, A, they, they would admit that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, just like every single one of us. That word sinner feels condemning, and that's because it is, Lord. But Lord, we recognize that all of us have messed up. We'll continue to mess up. But you stepped in and you, you sent your son to sign our debt. That he did it in his blood, in his writing. So that we admit that we're a sinner in need of a savior. And B, that we believe that you did indeed send him on our behalf. To take care of our debt. And see the hard one that we would choose to follow you every single day of our lives. That today as we go from here, we would recognize that we should be sharper today than we were yesterday. We should be stronger today than we were yesterday because of the fact that we are surrounded by a community of believers who should be pushing us forward. So Father, I pray that that would be true as well. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, uh, thanks for coming today. If you would like a prayer, uh, myself and Jeff will be here. We'll also have some, some others in the back. Um, and then don't forget, Christmas season starts next week. So we'll see you then, all right? Bye-bye.